Hello and welcome to the Australia-Indonesia's annual Pair Summit. So wonderful to have you joining us today. To start off, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Eugene Sebastian, who's the Executive Director of the Australia-Indonesia Centre. Hello and welcome to the second annual summit for the Partnership for Australia-Indonesia Research. also known as PEAR. My name is Eugene Sebastian. I am the Executive Director of the Australia Indonesia Centre and Program Director of PEAR. I wish to firstly acknowledge and pay respects to the elders and traditional owners of the land on which our Australian partner universities stand. PEAR is the Centre's flagship our important research program based in South Sulawesi in Eastern Indonesia. PEAR is supported by the Australian government and our, PAIR, our partners include the provincial government, the Ministry of Transport and the National Research and Innovation Agency. Over the next three days, you will hear from a range of experts researchers, policymakers, business and community organizations. They will address the summit's three areas, which is healthcare systems, protecting society and economic recovery. These topics are based on our series of COVID-19 rapid research reports published this year. These reports are our response to the pandemic. What we did was we brought together Indonesian and Australian uh, researchers from our 11 universities to explore the impact of the pandemic on health, society and economy. Over the next three days, our experts will share their findings lessons learned about systems and their responses. We will also hear stories about communities, their resilience, innovation and creativity. These three days will be an opportunity to explore ideas and consider where do we go from here. And as close neighbors and friends, how we can recover from this crisis and prepare for future ones. I want to thank all our researchers who have been involved in this important project. Thank you to all our speakers who are joining us at this summit. And I want to acknowledge and thank our partner universities, the Indonesian government, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who've been strongly supporting our work. I hope you enjoy our conversation today and please join us back here on Thursday, uh, 2nd of December and Tuesday, the 7th of December for more. Thank you. Thank you, Eugene. That's Dr. Eugene Sebastian, the Executive Director of the Australia Indonesia Centre. We're very grateful that the Minister of Health for Indonesia, Pak Gunadi Sadikan, is also able to send us a message. 
Could you please welcome Pat Bodhi, the Minister of Health for Indonesia. Honorable researchers, distinguished participants, ladies and gentlemen, with great crisis comes great opportunities. And so much it is with COVID-19 pandemic. As we learn from the current pandemic, we are now in a much better position to invest into the way we respond to these health emergencies. In doing so, Indonesia has invested so much to deal with the COVID-19, devising these four strategies. First, detection strategies. We increase the epidemiological effort, which include testing, tracing, and tracking to keep ourselves on track of ending this pandemic. We also run genomic sequence surveillance in areas where potential spikes are identified, as well as diligently monitor the mutation trend of other SARS-CoV-2 variants. Second, therapeutic strategies. We made sure hospital beds and health human resources stands ready to serve those who need the most. As the Minister of Health, I could not be more grateful for what Indonesia health workers had given us. For this, we extended our highest attainable appreciations, though we know we could never thank them enough. Third, vaccination strategies. We made sure vaccine supply, especially in areas with high density and intense mobility, was consistent. Vaccination centers were easily accessible and vaccination certificates were made mandatory. We also made sure that vaccination distribution to vulnerable groups such as the elderly were accelerated. Fourth, behavioral change strategies. In coordination with Ministry of Home Affairs, we effectively applied the four different levels of social mobility restriction policy. This helped control the transmission level so we could maintain the health system resiliency. Going onward, we will remain vigilant and keep enforcing the robust health protocols. This is done, among others, through improving the capability of Peduli Lindungi applications. Thanks to digital technology, its insightful analytics allow us to establish effective policies and execute cross-sectoral programs to protect our society. Ladies and gentlemen, as much as we learn from the pandemic, I sincerely hope so is our eagerness to turn this crisis into opportunities. With this, I officially launched the 2021 Annual Summit for the Partnerships for Australia-Indonesia Research. Finally, I congratulate every one of you for investing your time, spirit, and energy, making our world ready for the future health emergency. Thank you.
Thank you, Pat Bodhi, the Minister of Health for Indonesia, for officially opening our Pair Summit 2021. It's a great opportunity for us to have a look of the work that the researchers have been doing throughout the year and some of the key research that the Australia Indonesia Centre has focused on for the past year has been around COVID-19, the impact of the pandemic. And that's what we're going to discuss today. Uh, in fact, for the whole three days that we're holding this summit, looking at different areas of impact, what has happened and how we can move forward. And this session, as you know, because you signed up for it, is on improving health data connectivity and integration. Now, the minister mentioned in his remarks around the importance of digital, and that's definitely come out during the pandemic. A lot of the problems around data and the most useful and efficient collection of that data became acutely clear during the pandemic, not just for Indonesia, but for any country trying to get their heads around it. But particularly in Indonesia, we're going to look at what happened and the progress that has actually been made in some areas in addressing the deficiencies. Also, how Australia and Indonesia might work together, learn from each other and help each other to move forward so that in the future, these kinds of emergencies can be better handled and that the data is handled in a way that helps everyone. Now, we are going to take questions, so don't worry, you will get a chance to put questions to our fantastic panellists. I'm going to keep the chat function off for the time being, um, and I will let you know when it is on so that you can pop those questions into the box. And thanks to those who've already sent through questions from our invitation. Now, as we know, the Indonesian health system struggled to provide consistent and timely data on critical COVID-19 metrics. Now, that was due to health facilities having different setups, different governments adopting their own solutions. But those problems have also created some urgency to create a better system, something that the minister also talked about. And Indonesia is at an opportune time to put in place digital systems that can create an accessible, an equitable system for all Indonesian citizens. So we're going to have a look at that. What are the next best steps to establish a healthcare system that's based on best practice, but also have a look at the research behind the report, which raises some of these critical issues. Now I'm going to introduce just two of the panelists for a start, the two co-lead researchers of the report on uh, the collection of data in Indonesia. They're going to take you through what they've discovered and some of their findings. And then I'm going to bring in the rest of the panel. So let me introduce to you Associate Professor Shara Kinnear, who is our COVID-19 research co-lead from the University of Melbourne. And because we are a collaborative institute that works cross country, our other co-lead is from Indonesia, Dr. Sifirotoko, uh, from the Universitas Garamadja. And uh, if I could please ask these two lead researchers to take us through a short presentation of their work. Thank you, Helen. I'm now sharing my screen to start the presentation. So thank you again, everybody. Thank you for the opportunity to take part in the Australia-Indonesia Center Pair Small Rapid Research Program last year to actually address pressing challenges caused by COVID-19 in Indonesia. And of course, it was 
a great pleasure to work with my colleague, Dr. Rob Dilnath, as well as academics from the University, University Gajah Mada, Safira, Anis, Guardian, and our research assistants, Lely and Leah. And we were very fortunate to be able to focus on this particular project on enhancing national health information systems through data connectivity and integration to support COVID-19 response in Indonesia. As we all know, when COVID-19 pandemic started last year, Indonesia faced major people and health issues because of the fragmented uh, information systems, health data are not integrated. So it was really difficult to obtain a single source of truth to help trace, detect, treat, as well as control COVID cases collaboratively across the various healthcare facilities. And therefore, health and well-being of citizens were indeed at risk. These frustrating issues motivated us to propose this project. Specifically, our project has two aims. First, we would like to understand the extent of the COVID-19 data connectivity issue in Indonesia and the key challenges faced by stakeholders because of this problem. And second, we would like to propose recommendations to improve health information systems integration in Indonesia. We did a mix of methods in our research. First, we conducted an online survey targeting the primary health centers and hospitals in Yogyakarta province. And we actually run the survey from the 20th of October until the 20th of November, one month. And fortunately, we got very good response rate, which is about 73%. And this is considered very good for online survey. We received 160 responses from all the various health centers and hospitals. So thank you for their participations in our research project. Then we conducted in-depth interviews with 12 key stakeholders from provincial and district health offices, provincial and district communication and information office, as well as various healthcare facilities and the community. So we would like to explore with the current situations further and identify key challenges that stakeholders actually experience. Of course, in addition to those, we also did some observations regarding what sort of systems we used and how they actually uh, were used to provide response and manage COVID-19 cases. As our study context, we use spatial region of Yogyakarta province, which has four districts and one municipality. The region has about 4 million population and it has high degree of autonomy to manage the local matters, of course, apart from the five core responsibilities of the central government. And please note that our study was conducted just about six months after the pandemic started. So we should consider this as a preliminary study, just an in initial ass assessment of what happened during uh, those difficult period and what we could do actually to address those challenges. So I will leave uh, the rest to Safira to explain the details of our project. 
Right, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Shera. So I will continue to share uh, our result. Um, we are happy to report and share our analysis focusing on the flow and the um, situation of data connectivity and integration in Jakarta. Um, so this is um, our situation and context um, as mentioned by Shera. So our project was conducted in the early stage of the pandemic in Indonesia, say um, in the first uh, six months after the pandemic in 2020. So the overall number of cases started to increase. And um, around the final stage of our project, so a new minister was appointed. Um, thank you so much, Bapak Menteri, Bapak Budi Gunadisadikin for presenting some updates in this session. So we are glad to see some positive developments in dealing with pandemic in Indonesia. Uh, so based on our result in Yogyakarta only, we found a 10 applications used to capture the data with a similar type of data collected at both provincial and national levels. Um, this is just to show some among applications that we explored. Uh, for example, from the national level, we can see new all records and matters online and also some local or provincial applications such as um, CMS, COVID Tresum, and CISKLB. Well, interestingly, uh, these uh, different uh, applications collected exactly the same data. Uh, since the application are not integrated, um, the staff had to enter the data for, say, demography, diagnose, or lab results into three to four different applications. Of course, this is repetitive and time-consuming and has potential to create data duplication and errors. So um, here we are. This is the COVID data flow that we captured. Ideally speaking, it should flow like uh, this, simply like this. It starts with one patient, and then when the patient comes with the symptoms, then uh, he or she needs to go either to hospitals or primary healthcare or puskesmas. Then um, health workers uh, record the data to SIMRS or SIMPUS, uh, and both systems have been in use even prior to the pandemic. Um, patients in the suspected or confirmed categories then uh, have their data entered uh, into applications owned by the district or municipality, as well as provincial uh, application uh, CMS, Corona Monitoring System, uh, which also connected to the Jogja Pass uh, contact tracing application. Uh, when the swab test is carried out, uh, staff um, enter patient data into the uh, new all record and send the specimen to the provincial referral laboratory. Then uh, lab staff enter the result uh, of the examination to uh, new all record within two to three days of the examination time. Data for monitoring uh, the progress of patient cases will be entered into the COVID-19 application in both district and municipality or provinces. Uh, then, while the previous slide shows the ideal flow of COVID-19 data, we found that the actual flow in Yogyakarta incorporates a messaging application, which is WhatsApp, and also cloud storage, Google Drive. Ideally speaking, each system can communicate with each other, but in the actual flow, they did not. The difference between ideal 
and actual is the fast communication line using WhatsApp. Why? Um, WhatsApp is increasingly important because uh, the provincial health office must provide daily updates on the number of tests, uh, updates of new cases and deaths to the central government. WhatsApp is simply used for uh, quick responses and updates. <laughs> but by contrast, new all records application was sometimes difficult to access and data from health facilities were not entered in a timely manner. So there is a risk of underreporting. Um, transformation from the existing situation shown in the ideal scenario requires strong leadership at the national level to, in, to ensure a smooth collaboration between the various public and private agencies. So based on the data that we have for such a relatively short period of time, we try to provide some recommendations. Adopt the open health information exchange, uh, use this enterprise as an architecture to create a national standard, develop data protection policies, and uh, develop uh, the system for uh, future needs. We try to bring this um, open uh, HIE framework as a baseline of our approach for recommendation, because this framework is created by a dedicated community focusing on uh, enterprise architecture, such as business process, supporting data, application, and IT infrastructure. So we can see um, interoperability layers here, we can see architectural components, we can see interoperability layers, and we can see point of services. Uh, we may adopt or um, adapt gradually, or perhaps starting from some components first and then plan further based on our context in Indonesia. But understanding uh, components in this framework will uh, support, I'm sure will support countries as they develop health information exchange to improve many things, to improve patient care, to improve public health, and also um, the management of um, health uh, resources. Um, as started earlier, so our project started uh, on the early stage of the pandemic, and then while we captured the result based on the certain period of time in 2020, of course, we are aware of several developments after the project. We really appreciate responses and efforts from Ministry of Health, and we are looking forward to having further great development. And we also uh, witnessed the vaccination and resilience program for citizens, and uh, we know that Digital Transformation Office was established. And Indonesia now has health transformation document for 2021 to 2024. Um, to conclude, yes, we still have so many agenda and homework, but we can see some improvement, yes, as I said before, including Digital Transformation Office and Digital Health uh, and Health Transformation 2021 and 2024. So um, this is our key points in our project. So uh, thank you so much. And we are looking forward to having some more discussion later. Thank you. Thank you, Safira and Shara for sharing that. That's fantastic. And just um, curious to know, did you look at any of the Australian experience in your work around, around data collection and integration? 
Um, yes, well, uh, sure, we can, um, we saw and we considered some examples from Australia. So perhaps uh, Sharon will explain more about this one. And um, we, we learned a lot from um, Australian system that, uh, that we uh, explored, uh, particularly uh, in terms of um, how to manage the information and data to the reliable system that will lead to provide resilience program and activities. In particular, I think my health record in Australia is really a good example of what we can do in Indonesia as well, where we actually have a centralized storage of all individuals' health information, which can be stored securely, and then we can still have control over who should have access to our individual health records. So yeah, I think that will support the interoperability of managing health data and fixing all these connectivity issues in Indonesia. Okay, well, look, that's good to know. Thank you. Thank you both so much. And interesting that you mentioned my health because we're fortunate we have someone on the panel who can talk a little bit about that um, and also the business side of things. And I will introduce the rest of our panelists now so that you can see them and they can join in the conversation. Helping those two lead researchers is Anis Baud, who's with Universitas Gajamada, sorry, uh, as well. And it's fabulous to have Anis on the panel. He is actually doing work at the moment with different ministries around this very crucial um, piece of uh, progress that has to be made. Thank you for joining us. And I'd also like to introduce Jeff Parker, uh, sorry, Petra, <laughs> lost my screen for a minute. Um, Petra Garicci, who's the head of Pulse Lab in Jakarta, and but Petra is a friend of ours. You have seen him before joining the AIC on our webinars around using data, what's happening in Indonesia, how to use the systems better. So it's fabulous that he can join us today um, and bring his perspective on the work that's being done in Indonesia and also with the different uh, ministries, particularly the Ministry of Health. And our final panellist for, for today is Jeff Parker, who's the chairman of the Australia-Indonesia Business Council's Healthcare Group. And it's wonderful to have Jeff on. He works with many Australian businesses in this field uh, and has a strong connection to Indonesia as well and has been working very hard to build those uh, business and industrial alliances. So it's great to have him on the panel so that we can talk to him about that as well. Hello, Jeff, and thank you. All right. Uh, well, let's get rolling. And as I said, I will invite questions from the audience shortly, but I'd like to us to go into this topic a little bit more. And perhaps, uh, Anise, I'll start with you and then move to Petra, because you're both at the front line of some of the changes that are are happening. Um, Anise, can you tell us what sort of encouraging changes have you seen since your research was completed? Ibu Safira mentioned some, but can you give us a little bit more insight into what progress has been made or where things are at? Yes, uh, I think the COVID-19 uh, situation in Indonesia that has been captured by uh, our team, especially Safira led by, by Sarah, uh, has uh, emphasize the chaotic situation during the first uh, month of pandemics. And I think uh, it was a good opportunity for our country and also I think uh, all the uh, all countries in the club to, to learn. And uh, 
this situation bring uh, changes, a big change in our uh, situation. Um, Safira mentioned a new minister came to, to the Ministry of Health with a strong background on, on different aspects, non-health sector background. And he also experienced in the uh, chaotic situation during the financial crisis at the time, uh, 1998, uh, at the time he was also in the banking uh, economic sector. I think he learned a lot about how to improve the situation. And uh, soon after he took the position, uh, he developed a new office uh, called Digital Transformation Office. And I think it is the third uh, office at the ministries after the Ministry of Education and, and the Ministry of Finance that developed a new transformation, uh, digital transformation office at the Ministry of Health and working together with Center for Health Data. And I think uh, this uh, unit uh, with uh, strong leadership and finally developed uh, several roadmap uh, strategies and roadmap for integration. There are three components, including the integration of data, integration of application, and finally they developed uh, to support the digital ecosystem. And I think it is a good start. And uh, given uh, the, the coming, uh, getting lower and lower COVID-19, it's a good start to improve and scale up the system, not only for the COVID-19 uh, specific uh, data collection, but also for other uh, data collection in, in health sector. Mm. You, Helen. Okay, that, that is a lot. Yeah, and, and I think we're going to come back and have a look at some of those things that you've mentioned because clearly a lot has been going on. But Petra, if I can go to you, uh, perhaps a, a, a big picture of the problem that you've been looking at and where there has been some progress. Well, thanks, Helen. And um, just if you remember last year, we were uh, what we were talking about was a big picture on uh, what we were seeing in terms of consistency of, on reporting of cases and how there was a huge variance between different provinces and how they were effectively or uh, perhaps um, less effectively reporting on COVID cases. So I feel that this is um, this continues from that conversation we had uh, um, a year ago, I guess, and uh, where uh, the team, the research team has gone into much more detail um, on the ground, looking at the issues uh, where uh, in, uh, around interoperability and consistency in data collection and systems requiring uh, uh, that that were underlying uh, the issues that we could see from a, a bird's eye or a, a bird's eye perspective on uh, why uh, provinces were being inconsistent in the reporting of data. Um, we're working uh, currently now with the uh, digital transformation offices. Paanis was saying. Um, in uh, undertaking a research dive with uh, some of the counterparts in the Ministry of Health to look at how to combine also uh, uh, big data in some of the an an analysis, but looking specifically on three aspects of uh, what are the trends in epidemi uh, epidemiology, um, some of the breakthroughs uh, due to the spread of vaccines, and then also um, what is the impact of some of the public interventions. So, um, as Paanis was saying, um, also, I, uh, I feel there's been huge changes and um, referring to what the minister was saying also that, you know, uh, with big crisis or uh, great crisis, there's also great opportunities. Uh, I really feel the Ministry of Health is picking up on those opportunities and pushing forward, uh, Helen. Mm. 
that's that's good to hear yes especially as you mentioned from last year there was a lot of mm. trouble with that collection and you know clearly there is a case for change and there is a desire for change um Jeff, I saw you nodding when Anis was talking about some of the things that are being pursued. I guess that you've seen something similar in, in Australia and, and with the companies that you work with around answering some of these big questions. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Yes, that, uh, that's correct. Um, uh, and in effect, I'm wearing two hats today. One is as the chairman of the Indonesia Australia Indonesia Business Council Healthcare Group, as you mentioned, and we're a group of 60-odd people and 30-plus organisations that have some capability in this in these areas. Uh, and the other hat is uh, as an owner of, and um, leader of a healthcare consulting company that specialises in digital uh, with a lot of experience over the years, 20-plus, in, um, in looking at these uh, dimensions. So, um, yes, uh, Australia's had some uh, attempts, uh, three, uh, at uh, connecting up the healthcare system. Uh, and I guess uh, some important aspects is that the data side of things is critical to get right. Um, it's, um, you know, the, 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 the oil in the engine, if you like, uh, is one way of looking at it, or the petrol. Uh, and, um, you know, there's lots of things that can be done that need to be done. Standards is a key part of addressing that um, picture. Uh, and I can talk a bit more about uh, those, those aspects later, if you like, as well. Okay. All right, well, let's let's go in and look at some of those gaps. Firstly, Safira, you mentioned them, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, there was the unreliable data, the fragmented systems and the, the duplication causing people to actually use WhatsApp as a way to solve their problems. Um, do you feel that you know, this is just a temporary workaround, but in a way also showed and, and, and kind of pushed along um, the idea that we need to do better in Indonesia and, and created this need to find better solutions. Yeah, uh, that's very true because uh, when when we observe in the early stage um, of our project, we, yeah, we, we understood that they, um, they use like more than one um, health information system or applications. And then because um, when we observe that they, they didn't communicate each other, the system, then uh, we try to, uh, to understand more and how they can just uh, communicate uh, among the system. And then they said like through the WhatsApp. So this is uh, very informal, but we found this is very uh, a quick response because uh, the demand of having the data updates is very high. And um, yes, because uh, we realized that this is because perhaps of the decentralization system in, in Yogyakarta. Um, yes, and then after that, we summarize uh, our finding into, into um, some, some uh, reasons or um, some aspect that need to be considered um, important why the data is not reliable. So because uh, more than once uh, application, so that's why we need um, some kind of like concept to get a better system and uh, the data entry and also uh, human resource that handling that kind of uh, data entry is also considered important factor. So yes, but uh, the WhatsApp thing is we found very interesting and we found this is uh, help them to get the quick update through the system. 
Probably no surprise, really, in a country like Indonesia, known for its adaptability and, you know, so many civil groups working during COVID to get information out there using whatever digital means was available. Um, one of the challenges, as you've raised, just the fact that you've studied the Jogjakarta province alone is that individual governments make their own decisions. And Petra, I'd be curious to know, are you seeing also not just a push for for, da for data integration, hmm. but uh, an understanding amongst governments that, that they have to work together better, or is, is this one of the challenges of the moment? Uh, well, uh, I was just uh, taking note of what the Minister of Health was saying this uh, earlier, that you know, uh, the, working around the social interventions, uh, close collaboration between Ministry of Health and Ministry of Home Affairs. So that's one great example where uh, ministries are working together to address the issues, um, and I think um, it it's, it points out to the you know uh, there's a huge uh, disparities between capacities um, and other um, underlying uh, contexts within in different districts and different um, provinces. So, uh, so, I feel um, that's one aspect that we that you need to see uh, where uh, some districts have been very effective um, and um, in in pushing forward um, uh, uh, different interventions. But then there's also other districts that are uh, struggling also because of the uh, fiscal capacity within the district. So um, still a huge variety, I, I'd say, uh, Helen, in in uh, looking at uh, 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 how to address. Uh, issues such as COVID, and so uh, I, I, I guess the question back to to us is, you know, uh, th there's certain conditions where we're rec uh, being able to recommend in Jogja, but uh, are this similar necessary uh, underlying conditions also uh, available in other districts in terms of connectivity, for instance? Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, um, I, I thought I'd uh, just just in thinking about what we're recommending. Um, are there the underlying capacities as well as uh, connectivity available for systems to be able to uh, operate effectively in uh, across the archipelago? Mm, that, that's a good point. I might go to Jeff to look at that because obviously that's a consideration. If, if a business is thinking about what do I set up, how do I set it up? Um, I'm very interested too in the, the systems discussion. So I'll go back to Anis shortly and then share it, change management. We need to talk to you about that. But, but Jeff, from a business perspective and hearing all of that, you know, what, what do you think? How does business fit in? There's so many moving parts. Well, thanks, Helen. You've actually just taken the words out of my mouth. Um, healthcare is complicated. Uh, there's lots of moving parts. Uh, there's lots of vested interests. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes things that might appear to be sensible and the right thing to do, you know, cause confusion and sometimes some... Um, disadvantage to other parts of the system as well. So it's, uh, it is complicated. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, um, thinking of it as a system in that it's fully organized and structured and operates in a predetermined way isn't necessarily the case. And um, healthcare is more like an ecosystem, a bit organic, if you like. Um, and Parpetra touched on the, um, the you know, challenges to do with different levels of government. Uh, of course, we've got the private sector playing a, an important role and more so in Indonesia than in Australia uh, with the hospitals and the medical centres and labs and so forth. Um, 
So I think, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunity, there's lots of capability that can be brought to bear, uh, experience, lessons, etc., that um, uh, could certainly assist Indonesia with its um, endeavours, I think. <clears throat> Where does something like the example of the one, uh, the system in Australia called MyHealth, which is a centralised database, do, would something like that work and what lessons have been learned from that that could perhaps um, help make something in Indonesia, you create something better, for instance? Thanks, Helen. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a vexed question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, there's um, th this current uh, solution or if framework, if you like, that we're implementing in Australia is the third attempt. Uh, it's, it's hard work to get a national approach to these sorts of things uh, designed, you know, accepted, all the stakeholders funded, uh, implemented, and then importantly used uh, for beneficial outcomes. So, um, you know, it, and there's certainly some lessons from Australia's experience that could be brought to bear for Indonesia. Uh, I think in terms of the My Health record, um, the original design for it, uh, was different to what was actually implemented. Uh, and along the way, uh, you know, sometimes um, changes or even compromises might need to be made, made to, to suit certain, certain needs that emerge during the, the process. Uh, and it is handy having a, a central repository of key data, uh, which the health record, my health record is. Um, but it doesn't give full utility to the clinical purposes, if you like, that are necessary in, at the point of care in all circumstances. So uh, the Australian government, uh, through the Australian Digital Health Agency, has uh, embarked on a uh, API gateway project, which effectively will be opening up uh, access to the data and to the system as well, um, to make it more like an ecosystem with um, uh, greater points of connectivity so yeah in fact i've prepared a list of lessons which we can go through later if you like yeah. um, in the broader context but those might just do for the moment about the my health record that you asked about yeah i, I it just trying to give people a bit of an idea of the scale of what we're talking about here um so thank you time we have um and this i uh, thank you for answering the the question but and this in the q a and yes the q a is open so send your questions you had a very specific research question in there what i'm trying to ask this question so we don't go too deep into the technicalities but still understand the challenge that is faced um, one of the recommendations in the report was around an open HIE system as it's called and then you have to think about all the bits that plug into that you know what uh, uh, perhaps one or two examples of the the things that you're trying to solve and it's in the in the meetings that you're having yeah uh, uh, thank you thank you Helen I think uh, the issue of uh, uh, this integrated uh, system between actors in the province and district actually happen not only for the COVID-19 or specific uh, situation during pandemic, but it happens as well for other examples. For example, uh, reporting system for non-communicable diseases and also reporting system for any communicable diseases. So for example, tuberculosis, it's IV and others. The issue of uh, different actors in health sector, like Jeff mentioned, the complexity of health system in Indonesia. We have primary care. We have also 
secondary care. And in secondary care, we have uh, type D, C, B, and A hospital with a different level of uh, services and technologies. So the issue of uh, connecting data uh, from primary care into the secondary care, it's so always complicated. The coming of BPJS Kesehatan, the Jaminan Kesehatan Nasional, is actually one of the examples to improve the connectivity between different actors. Right now, for example, using a BPJS system, the data uh, with the national ID and membership of BPJS, data could be connected from primary care to secondary care. But still, it is only for those who are the member of BPJS Kesehatan. Right now, still remaining about 20% of our population are not covered by BPJS Kesehatan. So it is still an issue on how to integrate the all population data in, in our country. Secondly, there are also another example, for example, on tuberculosis. In tuberculosis, we focus on primary care in which a, a, a tuberculosis patient in, in Puskesmas once uh, they could not be cured in puskesmas level and becoming the uh, MDR or multi-drug resistant TB to be treated in the hospital, data usually are not connected. So uh, last year, uh, before the pandemic actually, Ministry of Health tried to connect the TB information system in primary care and secondary care using API. So what I mentioned open HIE based on the web services system connecting from all actors, not only on the specific disease program, but also to connect with the logistic, to connect with the registry of human resources, to connect with the registry of healthcare services is a very important. The role of interoperability layer in, in this kind of aspect, the Ministry of Informatics is a very important. Ministry of Informatics is right now is preparing a draft of presidential regulation on uh, architecture of e-government system. I think we are waiting for this uh, uh, standard uh, architecture that could be used later on by all players in, in health sector so that the complexity that has been mentioned by Jeff could be a better uh, ease and we will have a, a more accessible system uh, and also to, to support the uh, a more um, a quality-based system in, in our, our health system. Thank you, Helen. Thanks so much for that, that detailed answer. I appreciate that. Jeff, I see you nodding. Um, you've got some thoughts around how business looks at this wonderfully complex question. Uh, thanks, Helen. Yes, uh, not, not only from the business point of view, but um, also just based on experience, uh, you know, and, and, and Paranis is right that um, an architected approach is the right way to go with that and a part of the standards and, and ways of testing uh, conformance to the standards. Uh, and there's different standards at different levels. There's data standards, which we've been talking about. There's connectivity standards and a whole range of others as well that are, are really key to look at. Uh, uh, and in, in my experience, the, you know, the, it's good to, when you have an architected approach, probably not to lead too early with a specific framework as a, as a recommended solution, uh, th th those things I find usually evolve out of the conversation and the developments that the different parties have. I'm not saying open IHE is bad, it's a good framework, uh, but the process of matching that to requirements 
in a very sort of um, detailed and um, thorough way is an important um, you know, step that steps that need to be taken, I think. Um, um, so, yeah, thanks, Helen. Thank you. But Petra? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on, on one of uh, by Jeff's points uh, 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 when Jeff was saying, you know, how it's developed is in if you look at it as an ecosystem, right? And it uh, there because uh, different systems have developed uh, in uh, during different uh, periods, and it's it's really looking at the health of this ecosystem, the interconnectivity, and in a sense, the flow of the data and information. Which is which actually marks the strength or the health of this this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I, I, I yeah I just wanted to uh, pick up on 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 that uh, particular point. Thanks, Colin. No, that's great. Thank you. Uh, we've got uh, roughly ten minutes left, and I really wanted to make sure that we looked at change management and the political will to change because. You know, you can have the, the greatest solution in the world, but if people don't adopt it, uh, it's going nowhere fast and. Shara, this is your particular field of interest. We're looking at a great moment of opportunity for the Indonesian healthcare system, but we can see from the conversation and from the work you've done, how many different agendas are at play, how many different ways of thinking about how to tackle this problem. So from a change management point of view, where, where do you start? What did your research uncover that you think provides some clues in that area? Very interesting question, um, Helen. Yeah, as other typical you know, systems implementation, I think we have to remember that technology or the technical aspects is just you know, about 20-30% of the effort required to make a change, but the rest would come from the change management effort because the people aspect uh, is basically the most difficult and challenging way to, to address when we try to introduce something new, new systems, new ways of doing things. Since human, we people tend to resist any change, right? We like the way we do things. We like the system we not usually do or use every day in our work. So naturally we will be very protective of our status quo and would be very reluctant to change. So one of the ways perhaps in addressing this potential issue is making sure that the key stakeholders are involved early enough in any you know, project planning or any change or vision to change something major, especially for the scale that we are talking about here at the moment, looking at the national enterprise architecture for the health ecosystem, all this will will be eventually a major transformation for all stakeholders in the health ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just need to make sure we raise the awareness of why we need such a change and involve all the key stakeholders. So early enough in the design, you know, having consultation regularly so that they feel sense of ownership as well as providing enough resources to implement, to train, the employees, the health workers, so that they are ready and be willing to actually accept and use the system when they're ready. Okay. And uh, Jeff, you'd like to say something? And I'm pretty sure Pat Petra's got some thoughts on this. Thanks, Helen. I, I completely agree um, uh, with uh, what, what was said and, uh, you know, change management 
major piece of the puzzle. Uh, of course, before we get to change management, we've got a case for change. And you alluded to this earlier, Helen, about you know, what can build that. Uh, and related to that is a clear idea of the benefits that would come from whatever thing you're looking at doing, whether that's a national approach, whether it's a data integration, uh, whatever it is. And then, of course, leading to that or from that is a business case uh, because there's serious money that, you know, needs to be applied to this. And, and it's, it's until we get the buy-in from the stakeholders and importantly, the funders being a type of stakeholder here, the government usually, uh, acceptance to the investment and then, you know, an expectation of the benefits to the system, to the patients, to the providers, etc. cetera. Uh, we won't get the traction to actually make it happen. So, and, and having been involved each of those three times I mentioned in building the business cases, um, there's a, um, a tendency sometimes for some parties to overstate benefits and understate change, the change impact. Uh, and I'd uh, just recommend a good, honest approach to this. Um, there's no need to overstate benefits and, and to build a business case that's uh, implausible. Um, you know, th th these things can be developed, and uh, but importantly, bring the key stakeholders on the journey. <clears throat> thanks, Jeff. Petra? Um, thanks, Helen. I, I think there's, well, two points that I'd like to touch upon is one uh, within... Uh, with, with regard to these systems that it does point out for the need for increasingly uh, stronger competence within, uh, within ministries and uh, other government agencies. Um, and that also links with uh, um, uh, yeah, different skill sets that, that are now required to be able to operationalize, adapt, adopt um, uh, different systems as well. So um, this whole transformation requires a very systematic uh, let's say um, uh, uh, the terms really uh, uh, causes nightmares, but uh, bureaucratic reform, basically. Uh, so that's one point. Um, the other point I, th I thought, and why this is so strategic, um, that with PEAR working together across uh, Indonesian and Australian universities is also the influence of the of universities themselves, uh, particularly uh, uh, like uh, Gajamada, the the advocacy capacity it has, the networks, the alumni uh, it has, how is this used also to um, in, in really uh, bringing to light uh, uh, results of research such as this that can also, um, you know, uh, moving from community of practices to community of influence, uh, uh, communities of influence, um, per se, uh, where, uh, and, and so I think this is an, a side benefit uh, that really needs to be uh, emphasized in um, why 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 uh, partnerships such as uh, pair is so important is actually um, in building communities of influence um, to support uh, the change process. Ellen. Thanks so much, Pat Petro. Uh, yeah, good point. And uh, you know, Musa uh, Fear or Pat Anis, if you'd like to comment on, you know, the work you've done is important, and how can we take it further so that it helps with policy making decisions? I think the skills thing's also very, very relevant as well because we're not, we might not just be talking about um, systems and solutions, but human capacity. And that came out in the, the researchers report, the, the, how critical it was to increase human capacity. Yeah, Pat Anis. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, thank you, Helen. And uh, I just would like to add an uh, interesting point from uh, Pak Petra. Uh, Indonesia has started decentralization policy since 2000. 
but after that uh, i think we need also to include the more um, participation and influence from the local uh, when uh, pak petra mentioned gajamada uh, gajamada is i think uh, rather unique because uh, many staff of gajamada is a uh, very close in the central level uh, some also becoming the, the ministers in in, in the common, uh, in the current uh, government but you know many uh, universities in the province and in the districts i think that will be very important to be part of the uh, health system improvement in the local level we know uh, 34 provinces in indonesia it is uh, some some is very different to yogyakarta our setting our research in yogyakarta is probably very different to gorontalo for example so uh, the importance of community of influence is a uh, very important so that hopefully that uh, next time pair could also uh, how to provide any support uh, from those in not only in java but also in other to understand how complexity of indonesia and how to support also the business the ecosystem not only in java but also in other so uh, the collaboration uh, the business uh, and also the current uh, government uh, try to improve more investment as well uh, i think that will be important to bring not also the local government uh, the, the the universities the academic in the local government but also with the support on the changing in the regulatory perspective in the national level we always support uh, the government the ministry of health how to bring the startup many health tech many startup working in the health tech and they do not uh, receive uh, currently well support on how to bring the innovation to come into the bureaucratic system uh, just by today the ministry of health started the regulatory sandbox for health tech to support a special program but this regulatory sandbox is also very important uh, for other aspect in in the in the health technologies like what has been done by ojk and and bank indonesia on regulatory uh, sandbox for for the fintech so i think uh, yeah. more collaboration is very important in the uh, after pandemic thank you helen that's a really good point thank you and yeah bu safira i'll go to you now and then just a quick wrap up from jeff because i just think that the whole thing around the entrepreneurship the, you know the creation of different businesses um let's go into that and but safira what would you like yes. to add it's like a very quick response from uh, Petra and uh, Anis. Uh, yes, it's very true. Uh, and I just add about commun community empowerment because community empowerment is uh, a key, can be a key. Um, Indonesian people are communal uh, in nature and they tend to trust uh, community prominent figures. So um, that's why empowering society through collaborations like uh, Pak Anis and Pak Retrasak with community leaders is a key to success in perhaps in any movement or programs. Thank you. It's a very good point. Thank you. Yes, uh, we are running out of time, but I would just like to uh, get Jeff to weigh into this idea around collaboration you know incredible dynamic startups in indonesia lots of very smart people trying to find solutions can australian business work with that because uh it sometimes it feels like they're a world's apart jeff yeah thanks helen uh, actually there's already a very strong relationship between indonesia and australia uh including in this health um uh, industry space um I might just mention, I'm you know, friends with Dr. Bimo and the Health Tech ID 
group is a representative group of the startup ecosystem in Indonesia, very, very uh, uh, active and uh, doing great stuff. Uh, Dr. Hans Vijaya in uh, Surabaya uh, has uh, relationships with a number of Australian vendors, if you like, in the digital space. Uh, and of course, the Australian uh, Council on Healthcare Standards is now offering an accreditation scheme in Australia for um, for hospital accreditation. So there's a wide range of capability, I guess, that could be uh, could be brought to bear to assist uh, Indonesia with its um, transformation objectives. Happy mm -hmm. to help. And and yeah, and they would learn a lot as well, I expect, in that if if they were in that space too. Actually, I think Australia would have a lot to learn too from Indonesia. Yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the whole idea of this conversation that's, is we, we can work together more. We have a lot to learn. Uh, we can, we can um, help each other out, but also make some fantastic progression. So unfortunately, that's where we have to leave the conversation. I'm so disappointed. There's so much more we could discuss. Uh, but thank you very much to the panellists for their time and their thoughts. Uh, on the issue around data integration in the healthcare system in Indonesia. Uh, I'd like to remind you that our wonderful panellists have been Shara Kinnear from the University of Melbourne, Safira Koy from the Universitas Gadjamada. I keep saying that wrong, I'm so sorry. Uh, pa Anis Ford from Universitas Gadjamada as well, and they are the, the research team who've been presenting to you. We've also had Pap Petra Karechi, Head of Pulse Lab in Jakarta, and Jeff Parker, the Chairman of the AIBC Healthcare Group. Thank you again for your time. That is so much appreciated. And uh, we have been taking some questions. If you have any further questions, just send them to us and I'm sure we can pass them on. There's been some quite in-depth researcher questions, which uh, I was not going to answer, but luckily the researchers did for us. All right, well, we're going to take a short break now and give you a chance to grab a cup of tea or coffee or a glass of water, stretch your legs a bit. But please be back here in, uh, say, eight minutes time and we'll have our next session, which is going to look at protecting healthcare workers and changing public attitudes during a crisis. The crisis, of course, being the coronavirus pandemic. I will see you in about eight minutes. Thank you. Hello, and thanks for joining us for our second session today for the Peer Summit by the Australia Indonesia Centre. It's great to have your company. If you joined us earlier, you would have heard we had a great conversation around data in the healthcare system and the efforts being made to better integrate the data in a very big country so that things like the COVID-19 pandemic can be better handled. Now we're going to move on from that topic and look at how to protect healthcare workers and also change public attitudes around that during a crisis. These are two important subject areas around health messaging and how that messaging can have a serious impact on the health system. Uh, the chat function is off for the time being or the Q&A, but we will give you an opportunity to ask questions during the discussion a little bit later and I will let you know. And thanks to those who have already sent through questions following our invitation. Now, much has been said and written about the gruelling environment that Indonesia's healthcare workers have had to live with. And this discussion is going to provide a detailed look at that situation 
what they've faced, the lack of resources and how that has affected them, the kinds of decisions they've had to make on a daily basis around their safety and the information gaps. We'll also look at what is needed in the public sphere to decrease infection rates, not just amongst the public, but of course, amongst frontline healthcare workers, because it carries through. How can people be motivated to follow rules and protocols that affect their health and safety? And how critical is government and official trust in all this? And we know that while there have been problems, there have also been lots of efforts to make a change uh, and we want to pick up on those and look at how to strengthen those responses. Uh, what I would like to do to give you just a very short snippet of an idea of what some healthcare workers have been facing is show you a video in a moment. This is where we spoke to one of the AIC senior fellows, Dr. Krista Yogo Sumatono, uh, earlier this year about his working situation. Now, Dr. Chris is a lecturer and anaesthetist at Universitas Erlanga, and he also works at a local hospital in Surabaya. During COVID-19, he also worked at a field hospital set up to manage COVID-infected patients. It was a, is, a, sorry, a 300-bed facility. And Dr. Chris has been working on the front line since March 2020. So an incredible effort. And this short video is going to give you an idea of some of the, the things he was facing every day. I'll just let you have a, a listen and a watch. Rata-rata kami kurang lebih hampir 18 sampai 20 jam. Jadi kami bisa istirahat 24 jam sampai jam-jam di rumah, kemudian berangkat lagi di di tempat kerja kami. Right, and I promised it was short. Uh, we were lucky to catch him in between one of his shifts, as you could see. So to talk about this and the issue around messaging, I'm going to introduce my panelists. I should quickly mention, of course, we have some fabulous translators with us at the moment as well. For those who are hard of hearing, we have Fat uh, Widodo and Busa Sophie. My apologies if I have that wrong. And also Laguna is providing an interpretation service. So you can listen to this in the language of English or Indonesian if you wish. And thank you very much to our hardworking partners for all their efforts. We do appreciate it. Let me introduce to you now our wonderful panel. Daniel Proyogo is from Monash University and is a co-lead on the research report that was done for PEAR, the Partnership for Australia-Indonesia Research on how COVID-19 was affecting the healthcare workers. We also have as his co-lead, apologies for this work, Dr. Ratna Sari Dewi from the Institute Technology Sepulu Nopemba, also joining, she's joining us from Indonesia actually, which is fantastic. For joining us today. And then to talk about the work on public attitudes, uh, please welcome Sorry, Associate Professor Ansariadi Anka, or Ansha, my apologies, from Universitas Hazanudan. And uh, he worked with Simon Reid from the University of Queensland. Thank you, Associate Professor Simon Reid from the University of Queensland will also be joining us. So as you can see, we have uh, some very, very good speakers again. 
Uh, who, these are two research teams that have been working with the Australia Indonesia Centre across Indonesia and Australia working on this issue on these issues. Uh, what I think I will do is at the start just break it up into looking at the healthcare workers and their situation and then we'll look more specifically at the healthcare messaging and then we'll bring those two things together. Uh, so let's uh, perhaps go to Pat Daniel and Ibu Ratna first. And um, before we go into your research, you just show that short second, uh, sorry, that, that short video with our friend, Dr. Chris. I'm guessing that what he is going through does not surprise you based on your research. Bill Ratna, Munkanya, if you could go first. Yes, thank you very much, Helen. Yes, it's definitely what Chris mentioned in the video is what we also found in our study. So uh, the medical workers, uh, either this is the nurse or the doctors or other uh, healthcare uh, officers, uh, they need to work very, very hard, uh, particularly during the crisis when the number of people admitted to the hospital is pretty high. So it's uh yeah it's very setting situation it's it's very we can say it's serious situations and it's not easy for all the uh medical workers and other uh supporting staff maybe by then it will add more thank you uh Burat, and thank you helen for the questions um i think there are a number of uh factors that important the key factors important that uh, we need to uh understand and that those are something that we found from our studies that involve uh, 23 respondents um, from a different uh, called the group of healthcare workers, including uh, hospital directors, doctors, nurses, non-medical staff, and also epidemiologists. We also uh, happen to uh, be able to examine the uh, the 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 fight and struggles of these uh, healthcare workers from a different hospital classes from class a which is uh, the top class until class d and um, we found that there are a number of uh, factors number one is that in general the policy for occupational health and safety actually has been uh, set uh, quite well um, at the national level for example, you know, we, we already have since 2016, the Minister of Health has issued the uh, occupational health safety policy for, for all uh, uh, health uh, facilities in Indonesia. But since uh, July 2020, uh, after uh, the pandemic started, actually government has added special uh, policy guidelines, guidelines to handling the pandemics. And it's gone through five revisions that uh, we have still used until now. Uh, going to the hospitals, you know, each hospital already in, uh, established their um, policies. So the policy is already there. Not only that, they also provide or they also set up what is called um, special uh, prevention and treatment unit. Okay, so a group of people who, who, are, who have been given a task to make sure that the procedure, the policy of healthcare sorry, of health and safety and the hospital will be adhered to by staff and implemented properly. And they also provide the facilities, for example, in, in some of these hospitals, they provided what is called special isolation room. So they really separate between the COVID-19 treatment area and non-COVID-19 
patient's area. So I, I would say that uh, our findings suggest that at the policy level, uh, Indonesian hospital has, uh, has established an adequate uh, policy and guidelines. The problem, of course, in the implementation. And there are a number of uh, issues. Number one is, I think uh, the, the most important one is the discrepancies between different hospitals. And this is very important because the this discrepancy between hospital actually affect the, the number of or the risk that uh, the staff can be exposed to the infection of the COVID-19. I give uh, three different examples of the discrepancies. Number one is difference of, of facilities. As I mentioned at the, the class A hospital, they have a special isolation room, but not every, not every hospital has that. So the lower classes, they don't have it. Uh, even some hospital, they only divide it between, within COVID and non-COVID area with only by with, with a curtain. So it is it is very different from, from uh, different classes of hospital. Number two is the provision of the uh, protection, uh, personal protection equipment. Uh, in one hospital, uh, they, they're proud to say that uh, all staff have been provided, fully provided by, by all PPEs. But in other hospital, staff have to purchase their own PPE. And when they can't afford to do so, they have to reuse some PPEs that are supposed to be disposable. So this is the, this is the second example. Now, of course, the third one is the treatment of the staff who get infected by the, the COVID-19. Some hospitals, they provide the facilities to treat the staff who are get infected, but others, they just have to self-isolate at home and, and um and uh, fight for themselves. So this is this is uh, this is uh, the key factors that um, needs to be addressed. And the second one is of I course. Might... So yeah. Oh, oh I, I was. Yes. No. Go on. I, I yeah, jumped the, the, in the, ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the second one is of course the uh, the adherence and the, the awareness adherence of the staff, the obedience of the staff. Mm. And this is what we also found that uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, many staff actually uh, didn't. You know, they don't really follow the rules, and that's why the the infections start to rise among the staff. And when they start to see that COVID nineteen is quote unquote real, okay, it's, it's not it's not it's not something that um, that people just talk about it, and they they start to they start to adhere the stuff to do to, to the regular location. So that is that is right, the that is the that is the the, the main uh, issues that we need to address here. Great, because and I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's why I, I was jumping in, but Daniel, and I'm sorry, because I think this is the really interesting bit is around the compliance, yeah. the, the staff, what messages they were getting, the hospitals had policy, but how well were they implemented? Um, Ibu Ratna, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that, please. Yeah, about the staff compliance, yeah. As Daniel mentioned that actually uh, the compliance is kind of fluctuated based on the where it start With the pandemic, maybe uh, as uh, common uh, people in the society, they, they, they still don't aware about the, the potential risk. Uh, probably at the same time, uh, that's the same as uh, what uh, medical workers uh, face or feel. They start with the ignorance, but after the number of people get admitted, search, then they, they said, okay, this is this kind of serious. We need to, to very take care seriously about all the procedures, all the health protocol, uh, considering about the potential, high potential risk of uh, COVID-19 infections. And later on, when the... Uh, now it's become more i think more and more uh the, the more of the the medical staff more conscious about the potential risk but uh 
now there's another challenge, how to maintain the adherence and awareness to become in is still in high levels. Because when you are getting used to with that kind of situations, that's probably there is a chance that you become not that aware anymore. So uh, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's kind of very, uh, uh, you, you need to be consistent. I mean, the, the, the hospital management need to be uh, consistently remind all the medical workers that work in the hospital to always pay attention about the, the health protocol in order to, to reduce the potential risk of uh, COVID-19 infections among them. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. That's, um, I, I know you've got a, a lot more that we can talk about the work you're doing, and I will come back to that. But I'd just like to pick on this point around the messaging, because it's obviously playing a critical role in, in compliance and helping just to prevent the spread. Um, I, I'd like to bring in our other two panellists, Pa'an Sariadi and Simon Reid. Um, interesting that the healthcare workers, what prompted them into realising they needed to follow these measures was seeing firsthand the effect of COVID-19 on people. Your research wasn't specifically about healthcare workers, but just looking at public compliance generally in South Sulawesi and Jakarta. Does, does what you're hearing from the research on healthcare workers ring true with what you have discovered? Um, perhaps Ansariadi to you first and then to you, Simon. Yes, um, we, our study actually focused on the, um, looking at the um, uptaking of preventive measures for COVID-19, for instance, um, looking at the wearing masks in the public places, um, the willingness to uptake uh, vaccinations, and then also um, other perceptions um, <clears throat> to the COVID-19. Um, previously, we heard about the about um, COVID-19 among the um, health workers, particularly among the doctors. Um, we do know that there are a lot of doctors actually get infected uh, when they are work, but what we don't know actually where they get infections, which is a critical question because if we want to do some preventive measure, uh, we really actually need to know where they get infection, whether they are during the um, uh, uh, treat the patients, because we don't know they're wearing the preventive equipment, or where they uh, provide services for other places, for instance, during the uh, outpatients in the clinics or in the other activities. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any much information uh, on this uh, matter uh, where actually the doctor get infection. We don't know that the doctor get infection, but where? Because this is very important. We want to do preventive measure in the future. And uh, regarding to our uh, result of the study uh, we conducted in Jakarta and uh, in Makassar, and there are several findings. And then I would like to hand it over to Simon to present some more interesting findings on this. Thank you, Ansariadi, and thank you to the other um, research team because what we have is a very interesting set of observations that tend to be not uh, quite similar in some ways. What we find really is the complexity of communication and, and gaining compliance. It's not a simple thing we're asking people to do. We're asking them to change multiple behaviours that they've never done before and we're wanting them to do it 
for a period of time that has no end. And the only, the closest approximation is things like diet. You know, we all know what a healthy diet is, but very few people really follow a healthy diet. And it's the same with COVID. And, and what we find is the context really matters a lot. So, and Sariadi is mentioning there the issue about where medical and healthcare staff are infected. Is it in the lunchroom or is it in the ward or is it in the outpatients? And so there's three different contexts. And so what we tried to explore in our project was how the behavioural models, so we were going back to behavioural science to try and understand if we could get some insight into what makes people more likely to take corrective action. And what's interesting is the, the sort of key parts of the, the behavioural models are, are the perceived severity of the condition, the perceived um, risk to a person themselves, and also whether they think they can actually take control of their own risk management, so whether they can actually do what they're being asked to do. And I think we heard comments there about healthcare workers and the differences between hospitals. I mean, it doesn't take much to unsettle somebody's belief system. And um, so, yeah, so what's interesting is that um, health literacy is another issue. And, and, of course, healthcare workers are among the highest in the country for health literacy, and yet they're also um, likely to be infected and also infected outside of their own workplace. So health literacy alone is not enough. Um, what is often needed is, is that issue around um, ensuring that they understand what to apply in which context. Um, the, the biggest difference we found that it sort of like sits as a, as a moderator of behavior is that sort of trust and the consistency of messaging. Um, and I think the um, uh, fact Daniel mentioned the, the complexity even of the rules and the responses and the, the services provided by different hospitals was different. Um, and in, certainly in Makassa, um, uh, Ansariadi can talk to the confusion and some of the resistance seen by, um, in, in the community, which leads to a, a sort of an erosion of trust. So I think that's a very good point, Simon. And Ansariadi, I will get back to you on that because the work you did in Makassar is very uh, insightful to this issue. I did just want to check in with Pat Daniel and Borakna about where that compliance was occurring. I mean, Simon, you made the message around health. Sorry, you talked about health literacy. Um, so for, for Daniel and Ratna, just thinking about healthcare workers, I mean, it, it seems obvious that you'd have messages up around don't share the same place to have to eat your food in a break, you know, be, be careful about which room you're going into, the full PPE gear when you come in and out, which is very exhausting. Mm. And, and from what you've said, um, people will listen to that message, but it seems to depend on uh, if they if they believe the hospital that they're working for, and if the hospital is actually implementing those measures, so that they they can see and trust that they're trying to do the right thing. Now that's a very general takeaway from what you've said, but is some of what Simon and and, and Sariadi have found resonating with you and your research on healthcare workers? Yes, uh, <clears throat> um, that's what we found, uh, Helen. 
So um, what we understand from the respondents, basically the, and it's very interesting that Simon mentioned about self-risk assessment, because healthcare workers will assess different factors. Number one, how fit they are. And normally when, when, when they feel that they're fit and healthy, they're young, okay, there's no comorbid, normally they, 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 they're ready to take high risk. Number two is, of course, uh, the area where they work. And it's interesting that um, we found that the one of the critical area or the cluster where uh, COVID transmission actually occur, that is one one doctor told us, actually is on the changing room. When, when, when the worker has to wear the PPE and took out the PPE and change. That is actually the area where the worker should be protected, but actually become the area that many of the infection actually occur. So that, that, is, that is, again, um, the behavior, the viral issue is, is, is quite, uh, quite uh, important here. And uh, well, we don't need to, <laughs> uh, we don't need to mention a lot about uh, where they still congregate in dining room and, and other places where they have been told not to do so. But also very, very important is that many of the infection actually occur outside the workplace. And this is interesting part because Psychologically, when healthcare workers are in the hospital, especially if they are working on the COVID area, they become more alert, they become more cautious, they become more vigilant. But once they go home and they say that, well, this is no longer a red area or red zone, then they let, let down the safe, uh, safeguard and that is where the infection occur. And then and, and Ratna can, can add on it. <clears throat> Yes. Uh, yeah, I think what Daniel mentioned is already covered all our findings. So I just can add a little bit more regarding uh, the area of the uh, hospital where there's potentials that uh, the, uh, the infections uh, among the medical workers took place. The other place is in the uh, elevator, the elevator, and then the other part is in the office. So uh, basically talking about the perception of the risk, yes, uh, uh, generally, the medical worker will uh, hide their guard. They put uh, their guard very high if they work in uh, specials, uh, special room for taking, uh, particularly taking caring for the COVID-19 patients. But when they uh, go out from that red area, they, they start to let their guard down. So that's, uh, I think, it's still an issue. That's why uh, maybe we, we need to have a more uh, policy or we, we need to have uh, more like educations more probably for the medical workers to make sure that they still abide all the protocols well. And, 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 and not to mention that we need to understand that wearing the hazmat, okay, right, the right. full hazmat in a tropical country like Indonesia for at least eight hours a day. Hours. You, 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 it's yeah. difficult to imagine, right? Um, how, Very tiring. How, yeah. Very tiring. It, it, they've done an incredible job over two years. Yes. And, you know, our hearts go out to them. And, and, and I imagine, imagine if you step out of the hospital and you're perhaps not in Jakarta, which um, for Ansariati and Simon, you know, that was the, the high health literacy place. That was a place where people were really aware of how they should be safe. Um, very aware of COVID-19 and control measures. But in a place like Makassar, a different story. So you've got perhaps healthcare workers who are trying to do the right thing in hospital, but they're very tired. 
they need to go home and they step out into a community that is perhaps acting very differently to what they are trying to do within the hospital. Could you explain to us a bit about what you were finding out uh, in Makassar and what was happening with public opinion there around following health protocol measures? So, yes. All right. Um, just to add on this, um, uh, it, Makassar and uh, Jakarta has a different um, situation in terms of following them um, health protocols. Um, in just to give a context, in Makassar, on the early stage of the pandemic, the measure has been replacing for three times, and then each of them has actually um, given a different message to the community, and that actually influenced the, the trust to the, to the governments. And then later, they got the governor also has been replacing during the peak of the pandemic, and then that's chaos in situations. Um, influence um, how the government um, um, provide a message, taking action of preventive measures. Um, and it's quite difficult because sometimes it's changed very rapidly. Um, while in Jakarta, actually, it's quite different, um, uh, uh, what we call the government structure. They have autonomous um, uh, provinces. So the, government, the governor actually has a strong um, position, a strong authority, and they could control until to the district level. While in, in San Sulawesi, it's quite different. Uh, the government, will, some of the authority could not be directly taken with the government until the district office. Um, the, the district office, the Bupati, the Walikota has um, their own autonomy and um, cannot be um, um, interfered by the government for certain uh, situations. And I think that um, um, giving a different context and um, how the people behave uh, in two different uh, areas. Uh, probably Simon could also some, add some information. And also uh, the hospitals. Um, the hospitals uh, belongs to different um, level of governments. Some of the hospitals, particularly for the um, A level, which is the top referral hospitals, belong to the Minister of Health. Uh, other hospitals belong to the provincial governments. And, other hospitals belong to um, uh, what you call the at the district level. So sometimes the three different hospitals uh, belong to a different level of governments, and also um, they receive a different kind of logistic or supplies for PPA, uh, and they sometimes you know um, provide a different context regarding to the which level of governance you belongs to. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, th thank you, sir. I just know there's 10 more label, layers of complexity here, but ha ha help us sift through them. <laughs> yeah, and, and perhaps that's the, the, the single biggest takeaway is the complexity, because even in the study results, you know, I'm just looking at our results, you know, 70% of people in Jakarta uh, identified that they'd been diagnosed with COVID. Um, so that's double, that's twice the number compared to Makassar. And, and, um, and yet the risk perception in Makassar was much higher. So the, the people of Makassar perceived that they were at higher risk. Um, now, clearly, um, it's, it, what's interesting is in Jakarta, the perception of lower risk, even though there's greater experience, which may suggest that they feel like the situation's better controlled. So there's that sense of, 
this is we're in safe hands, um, things are working. Um, and you know, the I know in Makassar there were, were a lot more protests, there were a lot of there was a lot of resistance. And so in, in the results that we have, the um, attitude towards government and attitude towards what's being requested of people was much lower, much worse. So people resented what they're being asked to do. So, so what it means really is, I guess, if you're looking to the future, because it, I mean, none of this is, is sort of meant to be critical because I don't think any countries, you know, very few countries have had to go through this experience. And so we're all learning as we go. And, and as researchers, we're only able to measure, observe, interpret and suggest that's our job. But um, what I find interesting is, is even comparing the two studies, going back to the, the uh, conversation with um, Daniel about the health workers feeling empowered, feeling strong that they're not going to be affected. So we, we talk about self-efficacy. And what's interesting, whenever you measure efficacy, so this is your ability to actually do what you think you're doing, uh, it's often much, much higher than your actual effectiveness. So if we were looking at the use of PPE, your younger doctor is going to say, I'm perfect, I'm protected. But when you actually observe what they do, it's likely to be far less effective. So self-efficacy is an issue on its own because it moderates your likelihood of doing the other things that you've got to do. But it's also the complexity of the context. And we keep coming back to context with you know, tired healthcare workers who have different lives. They have a life outside work, a life inside work. We saw with our results in, in Sulawesi, the, the self-reported activities that people do, which we consider risky. So that's going to the shopping centres, going to families and friends, travelling long distances to visit family, were much higher reported than in Jakarta. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure why, perhaps um, Ansariati or others can explain, <clears throat> but it seems a very stark difference. But we interpret that as a, a perception of risk and, and the need to moderate that behaviour. Um, and I guess that's where trust is that funny sort of, it's almost like a modifying dial. It, it changes the way the risk perception model works. Um, and it's not linear. So in a place like Makassar, a lot of the indicators would suggest people may be better, um, actually their behaviour should be better than it is that we report, but the trust has actually created a situation where there's a, a sort of a worse situation than perhaps would have been if we'd had better trust in government. And the trust is not only in government in Makassar, it's also globally. We've had an unprecedented global social media storm of misinformation and anti-vaccine sentiments and you know the it's a very difficult situation for someone to navigate even for and even for sort of people with good health literacy and we see that in so we've repeated this study in Australia we've repeated this a similar study in the US and you end up with these really paradoxical results where um, even literacy matters less in America than um, your political viewpoint. So you will um, behave according to your political views more than your 
health literacy would determine. So it's it's Thanks, not straight, we didn't see those differences no. in Indonesia, political viewpoints, religious viewpoints, mm -hmm. none of that seemed to make that much of a difference. Hmm. Well, I, we are in a in a different situation to when the res, when your research was conducted, and that is of course we now have vaccination available. So I, I do want to tip into that. But just a reminder that in by November 2021, so by November this year, there were more than 2,000 deaths of healthcare workers in Indonesia. And around March at the start of this year, we're sitting at 718. And then we had that, that Delta surge. And now we're sitting at more than 2,000, 2,066, I think it is. That, that's a significant number. So clearly, more work is still needs to be done uh, around keeping people safe, even if you're vaccinated, I imagine work needs needs to be done in that area. Um, so uh, perhaps if I go to Daniel, Pat uh, uh, Daniel and Ibu Ratna first um, to talk around, you know, what is happening now with vaccination? Is that helping the position of healthcare workers? And then back to you, Pat Ansariadi, to look at that, um, and Simon to look at that element as well. And does that change behaviour? Is it better or worse? Daniel and then um, Bill Ratner. Oh, okay. Well, I'll give uh, Bill Ratner opportunity to explain more about the uh, vaccine because he's got the, the latest data. But um, oh, excellent. Yep. Yeah, but but just to put in context, right? Um, Indonesia, according to uh, the data from a WHO in 2017, Indonesia's ratio between the population and the healthcare workers is not is not really great. We um, we only have uh, four doctors. Indonesia have four doctors every 10,000 people in the population, very, very low, right? Then if you then suffer the casualties from the hacker workers, every single casualty for hacker workers, actually it reduces the, the, the ratio or, or makes the ratio actually worse, right? And as you mentioned earlier, Helen, that uh, around uh, 600 uh, casualties until December, 2020, okay, between March, 20 and December 20, around nine months. But from December until now, it's uh, sorry, until until November is 2000. So it's more than three times during the last 12 months compared to the first nine months of the COVID. So it's it's really 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 a severe uh, condition. But uh, my my last point for uh, handing over to Ratna is this: that we need to protect workers from three things. Number one, from the uh, infection itself, exposure to the virus infection, infection. Number two, from their physical fatigue, because it will, it will seriously affect their effectiveness in providing the health services. But number three, also protect them from the mental and psychological fatigue. So this, this three, uh, from the COVID itself, from the physical fatigue, and from the mental fatigue, and uh, vaccine perhaps it's only address one third of these three problems that we need to take care of. So Ratna can, can uh, explain more about the vaccine. Thank you. Yes, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you very much, Daniel and Helen. Yes, uh, yes. based on the, uh, fortunately there's a database that we can be accessed by public uh, about how the vaccination program uh, by the government already uh, conducted so far, and they have the spatial data for the uh, medical workers. Uh, and uh, maybe you can you can access to uh, vaccine.campus.go.id and based on the data we can see that actually the the target uh, 
based on the target about 1.4 million, actually the, uh, for the among the, the targeted number actually is already cover more than 100%. Like, like they, they already cover for vaccine uh, for doses one and doses two, and some uh, around 80% regarding the latest statistic, they already cover for the booster for the, the third vaccinations for the medical workers. So basically about the distributions of the vaccine, uh, the vaccine among the medical workers actually is, we can say it's really well, but uh, yeah, that's that's the fact. As, uh, as Adela mentioned that actually maybe this is only one third of the, uh, about the, the whole problem. Vaccination is only, can only, uh, address uh, some of the problem. We can. Uh, we still need to take care of another big issues regarding about the uh, the, uh, the workload and so on. Because if we see further about this, the uh, the statistic, the fluctuations number of fatalities among the medical workers, actually following the the number of the uh, the infection rates in uh, in public. So if uh, we can see also from the statistic, actually it's, it's it search the fatalities among the medical workers search around July, July uh, 2020. So it, that's when the Delta, yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's oh, the fact that we found during this study. That's really good. Thank you for that, that information. That, that helps a lot with framing it. And look, I will just mention, we have a question in the Q&A, which I think the researchers could jump on. It's around the role of uh, unions in the healthcare system in Indonesia. Now, I know a little bit about the industrial system, but not specifically unions in the healthcare system. So if one of the researchers could perhaps have a look at that while I go, though, to um, Simon and, and Sariati to talk about vaccination. I mean, vaccination is about trust, uh, <laughs> clearly. And, you know, we can see how well that plays out in, in some areas or not. But how do you think now having a vaccination um, is changing the conversation around public safety? And, and is it changing it in a better way? Yes, um, Simon, we can, you can go first because there is no background. You can go first. Okay, so um, I think the vaccine, it's, it, is, it is definitely helping. Um, I guess, as you say, our, our results show intention to vaccinate and clearly that follows the same sentiment as uh, the intention to comply with COVID safe behaviours. So Jakarta has a higher compliance intention for vaccination. Um, I think personally what I see is, is a slightly increased amount of confusion because people are, big, I mean, certainly in Australia, we had the, the confusion around the types of vaccinations and the potential adverse events. I'm not sure what's happened in Indonesia with that, but there's certainly a much more complex situation there with more a larger range of vaccines available, some of which are, um, are not as universally accepted as, you know, with different levels of effectiveness or efficacy. Um, I think vaccination just adds to the another problem in terms of communication because it's the vaccination itself is not um, as simple as, say, a measles vaccination for a child. It's not a simple vaccination because it doesn't have a simple endpoint people can still be infected, they can still develop symptoms, they can still develop severe disease, even though they're vaccinated. And so it adds another layer of trust 
issues um, because you then have the trust in the vaccine and the fact that the government's providing it is, is all linked. Um, what it shows us really is the, the really, really important part that building a, a stable platform of communication and trust, you know, why it matters so much. Um, very hard to build, very easy to lose. Uh, I'll hand back to Ansariati. Yeah. Well, thanks, Simon. <laughs> very yeah. easy to lose. I think that's a good point. Yes, <laughs> Ansariati. Thanks, Simon. Um, we conducted a study before the second peak of uh, Delta um, uh, on June, of July, June and August in Indonesia. And I think the um, situation um, during the July and uh, August, uh, where number of cases the highest in, 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 in Indonesia, also uh, provide a different perception to um, the community. Some of the people uh, could see uh, the worst situation during the time because in the messages we could find there's a report that the uh, 26 patients die in the hospital one day because they couldn't afford the oxygen. And then the messages spread out all Indonesians' uh, populations. So I think that the situation in Indonesia now has uh, changed a lot. Uh, this can be seen from the uptake of vaccination, for instance, where in, South, in, in Makassar, I'll give you an example in Makassar, um, the coverage of vaccination now has been doubled in last um, three, two months. Yes, um, more and more people become uh, aware about the vaccination, but uh, um, still lower, lower coverage among the elderly uh, people over uh, 65 um, uh, ages. So um, we see some improvements in terms of uh, vaccine coverage, uh, compliance to the um, uh, health protocols, but still there's a discrepancy, discrepancies among um, age group. For instance, the uptake of um, um, vaccination among elderly people. But uh, there's still an issue about the trust to um, vaccination because people now become aware whether the vaccine is effective to stop the transmission as it's happening now in, uh, in Europe where people, 85% uh, of the population has been vaccinated, but number of cases has been increasing in the last few uh, weeks. So the, um, many people asking again, um, whether the message, initial message from the government say that um, vaccination could prevent you to get infections. But um, what the, the fact, uh, effect that we got from the situation in Rufa in Europe is that um, the vaccination may not uh, stopping us to get infection, but prevent us to get a severe situation. So the, 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 the message now has changed that the vaccinations um, uh, protects you to get a severe situation once you get infection from COVID-19. Mm, okay. Yes. Look, I, I'm, sadly, we have to leave it there. I would like to talk about this a lot more. There's so much more ground to cover around how humans respond to messaging, the, the challenges ahead for the healthcare workers and getting the help that they need after being through a particularly gruelling two years. But at least we've started the conversation. And of course, the work that you've done is available at the Australia Indonesia Centre website or about to be made available, um, particularly on the Partnership for Australia Indonesia Research part of the website. We uh, will be providing information 
um, after this webinar as well. So if you're on our mailing list, then, then you'll all stay updated um, and learn more about the, the great work that these two research teams have done. So thank you very much for your time today and for uh, providing us with your insights. It's very much appreciated. I'd like to thank Professor Daniel Priyogo, who's the COVID-19 research co-lead at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Aratna Sari Dewi, who is also a COVID-19 research co-lead at Institute Technology Sepulu Nobemba. Associate Professor Ansariadi Amcha, COVID-19 research co-lead Universitas Hazanudin. And Associate Professor Simon Reid, COVID-19 research co-lead at the University of Queensland. And what a fabulous list of universities that is just to give you some idea of the collaborative work that is done between uh, the two countries. Well, now to bring all that together for us, it is my absolute delight to, to, sorry, to introduce John Lee, who is the team leader at the Health Security Partnership. And our two sessions today around data and the healthcare systems and workers and messaging uh, is something that he is very much across in his role. So um, thank you very much, John, for being available. And uh, if we could now hear your thoughts on what we've learned today and what we can take out of it. Great, thank you very much, Helen. And this has been really a very interesting couple of sessions. And indeed, where to start? I have just a few minutes to try and uh, discuss some uh, very different issues. So um, let's just, uh, you know, first of all, echoing what Helen said to appreciate, you know, the, the collaboration between uh, different universities. We first uh, had in the first session, the collaboration between University of Melbourne and the uh, Universitas Gajamada. And then just now we have been, we've been hearing about the other partnerships between uh, Sepulu November and Monash. Uh, so um, you know that's 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 really interesting, as well as with the Hassanuddin and University of Queensland. So let's start with the data connectivity and integration. As as we've seen in this study, uh, there are multiple systems in operation that don't really communicate with each other. Some of our own work that we have done in the Australia-Indonesia partnership has um, basically found the same thing. We have looked at the different levels of the system in, uh, across a number of different provinces. And we found, for instance, that in the Puskesmas, in the, in the primary healthcare centers, there are 77 different data applications that are being used. There is no interoperability between them. There is no prioritization amongst them. It is all based on different kinds of demands of vertical programs. So you can imagine the people who are already pretty overworked at the Puskesmas and now additionally overwhelmed with the, with the burden produced by COVID-19 and still having to input data into 77 different systems, often having the same uh, data entered multiple times into different systems. Similarly, at district hospitals, they have 55 different data applications operational. At the Ministry of Health, they have hundreds of data systems. So there's obviously huge duplication of effort. And we have heard from the presentation that 
you can't easily access the data that you need and it's very slow. So then people go to find a workaround using WhatsApp or um, you know, other, other um, non-standard applications. So obviously there's a requirement for interoperable systems as has been uh, recommended by, by the study. I think one of the most important things will be to move away from a program-based mentality to an individual-based or person-based mentality. So one patient presents that is a person and you have a data record that is associated with that person. Instead of seeing a person as just one of the statistics in a malaria program or one of the statistics for COVID-19 or one of the statistics for TB program or whatever it may be, we treat the people as, as individuals and uh, we, we have the data connected to that individual. I think we need to bear in mind, as was brought up in the, in the discussion, particularly by Pak Petra, that there are huge varieties across the country. And when we're designing an interoperable system using some good interoperability standards, uh, for instance, uh, HL7 FHIR, FHIR, which is uh, now being introduced into the Digital Tra Transformation Office in the Ministry of Health. Um, the, the, the capacity of the IT infrastructure in different parts of the country has to be also borne in mind. I mean, nowadays we are all living on Zoom, right? And uh, sometimes I have Zoom conversations with people in different parts of the country and they get cut off because of the poor internet connectivity. So, you know, we have to bear in mind that the connectivity might not be that great in some places. And so systems have to be designed in a way that can get around that. There are different ways of doing that. You can have apps that sit on devices that store the information and only update it, uh, upload it to the system when they have good connectivity, but it, they are not dependent on, on being online 100% of the time. There are lot, lots of ways around this, but we need to look into those issues. You know, COVID has presented a fantastic opportunity, as the minister said in his opening remarks. Great crisis presents great opportunity. We can solve some of the issues with digital technology, that is for sure. And there's a great opportunity, I think the opportunity of a generation to really transform some of the health systems. And obviously, as we have also heard from Pak Jeff and from others, there is you know, huge willingness to collaborate between Australia and Indonesia in bringing those systems uh, up to the, the next generation to be, to be fit for purpose. And there is, a, there is a young generation in Indonesia that are extremely literate with these uh, uh, new technologies, more than the older generation. And I would, I would venture to say much more so than Australians in general. Uh, I think there is huge capacity in Indonesia uh, to take a leap forward in terms of the technologies that are being used, bearing in mind my earlier comment about the, the, the infrastructure that needs to be in place. But at the bottom of it all, there's the human capacity. You know, we can, we can do lots with technology, we can invest more in systems and so on, but there has to be the, the, the human capacity. And I think it's not only about 
whether people are able to use systems. I think generally now with the younger generation, people are very much able to use the systems. The issue is whether the system is useful to them. And I think this is a question that we haven't really looked at in, in depth during these discussions today, but I, I would say that this is really, really important. Making the data useful to the people who are putting the data in. Otherwise, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the expression Geigo, right? Garbage in, garbage out. When people don't have the time, when people are overworked, as we heard from the other studies, when people don't see the benefit that the data has to them, there is a tendency to just rush it, put in partial data, incomplete data, or maybe no data at all. So the data has to be made useful. There has to be feedback system. There have to be dashboards or other things that can be developed that they can use at the facility level, whether it's a puskesmas, whether it's a district hospital, whether it's a private clinic, that they find that the data is useful and that they can use it to monitor their own work, to improve their own work, and to compare their work with others. You can have peer-to-peer -peer, uh, comparison between different facilities. And we also talked briefly about you know, the resistance to change. And I think that is something we always have to deal with in, in, in any kind of change process. It's part of human nature. But if people see that having good data and being able to analyze that data for myself at my facility and seeing what it means for me, they will see that as a positive development and they will support that change. So moving on, we, we, we talked also about um, the, uh, the, other, the other studies. So two quite related but different topics of protecting healthcare workers and also changing public attitudes. I think in terms of protecting healthcare workers, there are a number of factors that have been brought out. One of them is the whole issue of health literacy and education, which is important and has to be stressed, but is not sufficient in itself. It, it's, a, it's a prerequisite, but you have to have more than that. We heard about trust, for example. I think there are also important management issues that have been brought out by the report. Some of them include making PPE equipment available, for instance, maybe lack of budget has been an issue, you know, making sure that the money and the resources get to the right place, making sure that um, standard operating procedures are complied with and so on, that's a management and that's a supervision issue. So that, that needs attention. But I think most important of all, which has been brought out by this report is the mental and emotional well-being of the healthcare workers. We are demanding a lot of them. And very often they have to suffer a lot. You know, the, the general public, unfortunately, and this is not just in Indonesia, it happens in Australia, it happens around the world. The general public is often not very nice to those people who are serving them, those health pro providers who are selflessly uh, serving them. So we need to be able to make sure that whatever supervision and management is in place is highly supportive, right? We know that these people are going to have to work long hours. We know that these people are going to be incredibly stressed, but we need to make sure that they are constantly reaffirmed in this role, that there is, there is a positive management culture that encourages people and thereby uh, motivates them to do the best job and to take care of themselves and their families. 
so that they don't let down their guard when they go and change their uh, PPE equipment, when they go and sit with colleagues and, uh, to have a lunch, when they go home to their families, that they, that they recognize that they have a, a responsibility to protect themselves, to protect others, to protect their families. And that, that will be greatly helped by much more positive affirmation of, of those people. In terms of, of changing public attitudes, uh, we've also been doing some, some tracking of, of, of public attitudes, at least in some, some of the provinces. I think it's one of the positive things is that it, it comes out universally in all, in all of the studies that people actually still trust the government. You know, people trust government doctors, government experts. They come out as number one in terms of the people trusting. What source of information do you trust? Right? They don't necessarily trust family members or so-called social influencers, but they do trust the experts. And that's great because that, that, is, that is something that Indonesia has, which unfortunately some countries don't have now. There's a great sort of skepticism around the world about experts. But I think in Indonesia, we still have that. As, as has also been, been pointed out, there isn't the politicization say of, of mask wearing or, or getting vaccinated. Those, those are not there in Indonesia. What, what we found from our studies is that the number one reason for vaccine hesitancy is people are not sure about the side effects, you know, what is known as kippy, right? The, the adverse uh, symptoms, adverse effects after a vaccination, or people are not, as has also been mentioned quite confident that the vaccine is going to work. And you know what we are seeing from the latest statistics is that the rate of vaccination, although it is still going up, has slightly slowed down. So people may be becoming a little complacent because of you know, the fact that there are not so many cases around. So it just shows that we really have to continue to work on generating trust, to be open, to be transparent, to really state clearly what the risks are, you know, sometimes people kind of don't quite trust the government because the government is always very positive. There are also risks, there are negative things that also need to be communicated. People do believe the government experts, but they need to hear the full story, not just some kind of sanity, sanitized uh, version of the story. So I think, you know, we, we're still all learning and going back again to what the, the minister said, the first thing today, you know, this is a great opportunity for change. Let's learn from COVID. Let's apply the lessons that are learned to the whole health system, not just uh, to dealing with COVID, but to dealing with all other diseases and all the other conditions that the health services have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. That we can support our health workers, we can give the best possible tools to them that we can encourage them with, with positive and, 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 and affirmational management systems. And uh, hopefully next time we have a nasty pandemic coming around, which unfortunately is probably going to be the case, uh, we will be better prepared. And certainly uh, Australia and Indonesia stand together in partnership uh, to see that this research and these findings are going to be applied and are, and are going to uh, enable us to learn from one another. As Jeff said earlier, it's not just a one-way traffic, it's about a partnership, it's about us learning from one another. 
So I think that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll pass back to Helen. Thank you, John. That was a fantastic wrap up, much appreciated and some really uh, good extra points we learned in your discussant roles. We do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And uh, now to close the session, I would like to invite Kirsten Bishop, who's the Minister Councillor for Governance and Human Development at the Australian Embassy in Jakarta, who also kindly is giving us her time today um, to provide um, some closing remarks. Thank you. And lovely to meet you, even if just virtually for the time being. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Kirsten Bishop. Um, I'm the Minister Councillor for Governance and Human Development here at the Australian Embassy in Jakarta. Uh, I'm really very pleased to be joining you all um, this morning uh, at the second AIC Paris Summit and in particular to be able to um, close the session of, um, for today which has involved so many uh, impressive uh, speakers and participants. Um, as you know the theme of the event COVID-19 Improving healthcare, protecting society and economic recovery comes, of course, at a time when both our countries, Australia and Indonesia, are taking steps uh, to return to a new normal um, as the pandemic continues to evolve uh, around us. Um, but the conversations we are having are, are, are important and, in, and help us to ensure that learning, um, learning, as we've just heard, learning from the, our experience during this pandemic um, is not lost and will inform how we um, move forward. Um, this event has been a, a real showcase um, of the best uh, of the kind of relationships that we have between Australia and Indonesia. And we can see how our networks are supporting each other, um, sharing knowledge and innovation and trying to find together solutions to what are ultimately shared challenges. Um, today, we've heard about the theme of improving healthcare. And we know that both Australia and Indonesia have learned some, some hard lessons um, over the last year and a half um, about some of the gaps and challenges in our respective healthcare systems. And we've also both grappled with shortages of uh, healthcare workers and personal protective equipment and, and our data systems have had to be um, agile and innovative in trying to report cases and understand high risk areas and, and thing, issues of that, that kind. And sadly as well, we know that um, as we've just heard, Indonesia has suffered some of the highest uh, rates among healthcare workers, rates of deaths among healthcare workers from COVID-19 in the world. So during these, what are very difficult times, um, I think we are very fortunate that the, the, the strong ties between Australia and Indonesia mean we're in a very good position uh, to share knowledge with each other and to collaborate together to find solutions. Um, and the Australian government continues to work very closely with our Indonesian counterparts to support Indonesia's uh, COVID-19 response, um, including support to local health systems um, with equipment and ongoing training efforts and provision of essential goods and also uh, uh, delivery of COVID-19 uh, vaccine doses. Um, and also our Australia-Indonesia Health Security Partnership has played a really vital role in helping uh, Indonesia respond to both its immediate needs um, in the face of the pandemic, but while also working closely with Indonesia on some of the longer term um, objectives around building stronger health security systems in Indonesia, working on issues of surveillance, laboratory capacity, human resource capabilities, <coughs> which, <coughs> excuse me, which are so, so important, um, we know from our experience over the last two years, but also into the future. 
Um, and, and also we continue to work, of course, closely through our multilateral health partners and Indonesia's multilateral health partners um, to maintain some of those other key services, health services um, that are worth combating other conditions like measles, polio, malaria, TB, but also ensuring that there's access to uh, safe maternal health care, family planning and other critical services throughout the pandemic and beyond. So turning to um, just to AIC PAIRS COVID-19 rapid research uh, projects, which have been conducted um, by our partners through, through the PAIR initiative and funded by the Australian government. I think it's been really an impressive um, demonstration of the ability of our, of our partners to really pivot and respond to what has been a, an urgent uh, crisis. And the findings of these projects, as we've heard um, through today, um, have been very timely and informative and are really already feeding into help policymakers uh, tackle some of these current urgent challenges and also helping us though to prepare um, for the future. And unfortunately, we know that, that crises of this kind will, will continue to occur into the future. So I just really wanted to commend um, and thank all of the AIC pair researchers who have been involved in these research initiatives um, and particularly those who we have heard from today. Um, and looking to today, uh, in particular, the theme of the first session around health data and connectivity, um, health data connectivity and integration. We know that Indonesia, as we've heard, has such a huge and dispersed population and a decentralized system of government makes data integration and connectivity a particular challenge at the best of times and, and no less um, throughout a pandemic. And, and, and as we all know, the Indonesian government recognizes and we, before the pandemic has recognized this challenge in the, in the launch of Satu Data, the Satu Data Indonesia initiative. And Australia is pleased to be supporting um, that initiative in a range of ways, including in the health sector through some of these really important research partnerships that are really working to better understand the nature of these challenges and to inform policy and also the development of, of, of practical solutions um, to those challenges. So we've heard from um, our research, research today, Associate Professor Shira Kurnia and Dr. Uh, Sapiroto Kaur, uh, who presented on their study on data integration in Jogjakarta during COVID-19 and their recommendations to adopt an open health information exchange framework, create a national standard for data capture and develop stronger systems for the future including around data protection are all extremely valuable uh, in informing policy, the important policymakers and program decisions into the future. And the perspectives of industry leaders like Jeff Parker, Pat Jeff from the Australia Indonesia Business, Business Council's Health Group, but also Pat Petra Karetti from Pulse Lab Jakarta, also very insightful. Um, and we know that there are certainly, uh, we think, further opportunities for Indonesia and Australian health sector businesses and other partners to collaborate together in this area, um, as outlined in Australia's recently launched blueprint for trade and investment with Indonesia, which specifically highlights digital health um, as a key area of collaboration and cooperation into the future. And lastly, just turning to, this, to the second session this morning on, on protecting healthcare workers and changing public attitudes. Um, as we know, and as we've heard, uh, healthcare workers, of course, are at the front line, have been at the front line of COVID-19 COVID pandemic and have really had to um, work hard and to, 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 be, to maintain their physical and um, psychological well-being and have been under a lot of strain. Um, and occupational health and safety policies are so crucial in supporting these workers. Um, and the work of Professor Daniel Pradyogo and Professor Ratna Saridewi and their teams provide such 
meaningful recommendations in terms of how these practices and policies can be improved. And at the same time, the public has also been required to adapt um, how they live and, and, and how they adapt to um, public health guidelines and protocols. So in that regard, Associate Professor Simon Reid and Associate Professor Ansariadi Ancha have also, of course, discussed how rates of education, literacy uh, and trust in government um, can impact on individuals' behaviour and compliance with these kind of protocols and regulations. And of course, the more we can understand um, the complexities of these motivations, the better we'll be uh, in future to be able to um, respond and communicate effectively on um, public health and crisis response. And finally, um, just to say a big thank you as well, it was great to hear from Pat John Lee, uh, the team leader from our Australia-Indonesia Health Security Partnership who did um, such a great job uh, in bringing together some of the key themes and the key issues from this morning's sessions. So um, in closing, I would just like once again to say thank you very much um, to AIC Pair for putting together this uh, uh, summit once again uh, this year and to um, thank you to all the AIC pair researchers um, whose expertise, hard work and, and passion um, have really helped us uh, to illuminate what are very difficult and complex policy issues um, over what has been such a dark and difficult time for all of us. So thank you once again. Uh, Salamat siang and salam sehat. Thank you, Kirsten Bishop. Salamat siang to you as well. That is Kirsten Bishop, who is the Minister Councillor for Governance and Human Development at the Australian Embassy in Jakarta, rounding off our day one summit presentations. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And uh, as I said earlier, we have information on our website about all those research projects. Now, uh, we of course had three more days, uh, sorry, two more days to go, not uh, one after each other, so you do get a break. The next two sessions are going to be on the 2nd of December, which is this Thursday, and then the next two after that are on the following Tuesday, the 7th of December. I was sorry, it was momentarily bamboozled by that fantastic slide you can see in front of you. Um, outlining the speakers for each of the two days remain and also giving you a QR code so that you can easily register for those events. Uh, this Thursday, we're going to have um, some great in conversation around the creative economy and also disability and how they've been affected by COVID-19 and also some solutions to help people move forward. And then next Tuesday, uh, we're going to talk about health versus economy, a very tough decision, and also the impact on the tourism industry of COVID-19, which has been pretty obvious to see, but the researchers have done some great work on, in drilling down into it. Uh, so please come along and join us for those sessions. Today's webinar will be available on demand as soon as possible, as soon as we can get the technicalities sorted. And you can find those recordings and much more on the PEAR website. And we'll post a link in the chat for you to take you to that website. There's also an extremely short survey at the close of this webinar, and we encourage you to complete it. We do know that we've taken up your time. We love having you with us. If you can do that short survey, that would be wonderful. I would like to thank our Indonesian Sign Language interpreters, Pak Widodo and Busonia from Insali, who've done a wonderful job.
for our audience and also our audio translators, Langua, who are our fabulous partners for these events. Thank you again for your time. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and that we uh, look forward to joining you again on Thursday.